this morning for our text, Acts 21, verses 1 through 14. If you recall, the Apostle Paul has been journeying back to Jerusalem. Last week we looked at some lessons he had for the elders at Ephesus. And when he had parted from the, and when we had parted from them and set sail, we came to a straight course, came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. From there the ship was to unload the cargo, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in, at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him in, into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing and your guidance from your spirit and his wisdom as we look into your word together this morning. Help your servant as he preaches and teaches principles that are found here in this scripture. We ask this in the holy name of the Lord. Amen. Let me remind you, uh, scripture is... Scripture is strong historically. Whenever we read Scripture, they, God inspired the authors to always make a point of places and names. There is a logical progression of stories that are told, the accounts and narratives that are in Scripture. And they're not there just for our interest, but they are there to prove to the point that the accounts here 
have truth to them. The testimony of the historical accuracy gives some credence, some support to Scripture itself. I had heard that there was an English nobleman by Sir Ra named Sir Ramsay who was skeptical of Scripture, and he took upon himself to journey the footpaths, the journeys of Paul, and he examined Scripture according to the historical records he could find in the places he visit, visited, and he concluded after it was all done that Luke himself, the author of Acts, was a very fine historian. He could find nothing wrong, nothing out of place, nothing in error about the facts and places and the journeys. Nothing was made up. So as we look at these texts and we read about their journey, he is putting it there for a reason, telling at least the first audience of readers this is where we were. You can go there and you can see these cities. You can visit these churches. This is where we were. There are a couple of things I would like to get out of the way in view of an introduction. <clears throat> First, there is a subtle assumption about the Holy Spirit the work of the Holy Spirit in this text. For many faithful evangelistic Christians, Acts is a very thrilling document to read and study. There are accounts of bold, courageous faith that is inspiring to a lot of Christians. They read about powerful demonstration of the Holy Spirit, and that's exciting to them. When they read about the presence of the Spirit and wind and fire and the tongues and the miracles, that's just stirring, and there's nothing wrong with that. But a great many professing Christians assume that visible, convincing Holy Spirit power is still accepted. They still expect it to happen today. And you probably know some of these churches that I talk about. And quite frankly, if you're like me, I have in my life not so much lately, but in my life there have been times, Lord, I wish I could get that excited about Jesus. But it's out of place. It's confusion. It's distracting. It becomes idolatry. We will deal with this some as we get into the text, this idea of uh, this assumed error about the Holy Spirit. But there is one big glaring point also that I would like to get out of the way as part of the introduction because if you're like me, especially in this day and age, when you read down through that and got to verses 8 and 9, oh, wow, is that right? On their journey, they stopped into Caesarea and they met with Philip, the evangelist who was one of the seven, according to verse 8. And they stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. He had four unmarried daughters who, I'm going to say it, preached. 
If you might remember in Acts chapter 6, when the church was struggling with fantastic growth, some of the poor were being neglected. So the elders of the church, the apostles of the church, appointed seven men to be deacons to oversee the administration of the needs of the poor. And Philip was one of those. Philip was also, he was one of the first deacons. He was also one of the first evangelists. You also remember in Acts 8, Philip was the one who ran along beside the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch. Oh, by the way, I hear you're reading from Isaiah. Would you like me to explain it to you? I cannot imagine that conversation. Here, this chariot's just kind of rolling along, and this guy's running alongside. How do you carry on a conversation? Thankfully, he was invited into the chariot and led the man to the Lord. So Philip was principal, very strong principal in the early church. But this idea, the daughters who prophesied, are we to assume that it's okay because of what's here in Acts 21? Luke mentions this because I think he wants to verify. He wants to tick a box, check it off the list, that what was going on in Luke and his account of Luke ever since Pentecost was a fulfillment or a partial fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. You might recall in Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 28, the book says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. So what is going on in the account of in the book of Acts is a fulfillment of this passage in Joel 2. If you continue reading in Joel 2, there's more to come. That's why I said it's a partial fulfillment. Joel 2, verse 30, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we see this thing that suggests, or a lot of people assume, some people even use it as a proof text. Look at here. Philip the evangelist had four preachers and they were all women. And then the Apostle Paul has the audacity in 1 Timothy 2 to say, I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. You put the two side by side, that's, that, that's chauvinistic. That's oppressive. That's audacious. I remember years ago hearing messages or lessons taught about 1 Corinthians 11. Women should wear hats in church because it says so in the Bible. Ladies, wear your hats. First Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 3, 
The Apostle Paul wrote to them saying, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of the church, head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then, we, then she should cut off her hair. But since it is disgraceful for, disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her head be covered. To get a wise and correct understanding of this, the Apostle Paul is teaching about authority within the church, authority within the family, within the church, and before Christ. And it goes all the way up the food chain is Christ has his head in God the Father. The church has her head in Christ her Lord and Savior, her groom. So it doesn't automatically change in this teaching that women have their head as their husband, so they should wear hats or veils. He's talking about being under proper authority for whatever you do in the church. Proper authority of Scripture, proper authority within the church, proper authority within the family. Scripture does not deem women to be unfit and unworthy for sharing the gospel. The role of men and women, the role of fathers and mothers... For the Christian within the church are always to reflect Christ and his relationship to his bride. That's why Ephesians 5 reminds us that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and he is himself its Savior. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So let me again say, Scripture does not deem women unfit or unworthy. What do you say to the woman, or to someone like Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband gave his life on the mission field? Is she not? Is she out of order, or should she be silent, or is she allowed to share her story? If she does it faithfully under the authority of the church, under the authority of Christ, I don't think she's ever claimed to preach. She's just shared her testimony. She shared her story. What do you do with someone who has suffered like Johnny Erickson Tata? I don't think that she has ever claimed any authority of herself. I don't think that she has ever denied scripture. 
she has kept herself submissive and humble. But then you have someone like the Presbyterians have Amy Bird and the Baptists have Beth Moore who are clearly feminist and proud. There's something out of sync there, something out of harmony with Scripture. I remember my own mother had a burden for the lost. I remember several times coming into the house and not being able to find her anywhere. She was in the closet with the door closed, praying. But she was faithful. Nearly every summer of my childhood, she would, in cooperation with Child Evangelistic Fellowship, hold neighborhood Bible clubs. A few years ago, one of the playmates, one of the families we grew up, the kids we played with at that time, one of the daughters passed away. And her brother spoke to my brother at the funeral, telling, them, telling him that were it not for your mother, I would never have found Christ and I would not be on the mission field today. Women have a place in the church. There just needs to be some faithful submission and humility, as we all should be. So what we read in Acts chapter 21 about Philip and his daughter's preaching is not a proud boast. It's not a proof text that all women are allowed to do that any any time they want to. It is first and foremost a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, and it's, it's temporary. I recommended a book by Rebecca Merkel named, called Eve in Exile. If you haven't read it, please do. I've handed it out to a few people. If you please read it. There was one particular chapter in there. I don't usually use this word for about books, but one particular chapter in there I thought was gorgeous. Well, enough by way of introduction. We've looked at a partial fulfillment of Joel. We've looked at... Uh, We've suggested we will look some at the work of the Holy Spirit, and we will see more of that. We've looked at this point about Philip's daughters who prophesied. It was something that was temporary. Two main points I would like to look at quickly this morning. There is a continued emphasis on shepherding the flock, evidence within our text, and there is a lesson on the Christian's ability to face spiritual danger fearlessly. If you remember last week's lesson about shepherding the flock, the Bible said Paul told his people, the elders at Ephesus, you are overseers, you are bishops. It is good, it is a godly honor to serve the Lord. It is a godly call of the Lord 
to serve the church. It is the Holy Spirit who put you there. And because Christ's blood ransomed the church, you should be faithful to serve faithfully. This week's lesson, there is a continued emphasis on shepherding the flock. Looking quickly again at verse 1 of chapter 21. Luke wrote that we had parted, when we had parted from then and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. And from there the ship was to unload this cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Verse 4, they, they stayed there for seven days. They looked for the disciples. They wanted to encourage them. They wanted to see how they were doing. They wanted to know what their fruit was being born in their church, their congregations, how the Lord was using them. In verse 5, but when our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then they went on board the ship and they returned home. Clearly, they loved one another. Whole families dropped what they were doing to see them off at the ship. So there is evidence here about shepherding the flock. The Apostle Paul was going back to places he had visited, seeds that he had planted, wanting to nourish their hearts and their minds. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Again, another example of shepherding. Verse 7. We had finished the voyage from Tyre, we had arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day, and the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And skipping down to verse 13, we'll get back to that part in between in just a moment. They tried to talk him in and talk Paul out to going to Jerusalem, but then he says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Clearly, they loved one another. There was active shepherding and encouraging going on between Paul and his party and the people at Caesarea. So there is continued emphasis on shepherding the flock in our text. There is also a lesson of Christ's ability or the Christian's ability to face spiritual danger fearlessly. We need to ask who is facing spiritual danger in our text. Well, it's the Apostle Paul. His evidence has already been written about him that he will soon face some spiritual danger. In Acts chapter 20, verse 22, the Apostle Paul said, Now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit... Listen... If you want, if you want, if you ever wonder about the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life, do you want this kind of Holy Spirit ministry in your life? You want this kind of power in your life? The Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. 
we are all almost tempted sometimes. Oh, I wish I could get excited about the Holy Spirit, but whenever he does something like this, I'm not quite so sure. I go bound. The word there means, in certain contexts, imprisoned. In other contexts, compelled. And in a couple of contexts in Scripture, married. So he is using the word bound, I'm, I, I must go. The Holy Spirit says, I cannot escape this. And the coming danger was no, no surprise to Paul, since the Holy Spirit had warned him. But it also suggests the Holy Spirit seemed to warn others in the church. Verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of Gentiles. When, he, when we heard this, we and the people were urged, then urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Agabus gave an impassioned plea, walked up to Paul, snatched his belt off, tied his own hands and feet, says, you're going to be bound like this and turned over to the Gentiles. Don't go, Paul. But Paul had said already the Holy Spirit constrained him to go to Jerusalem. Who was right? Paul or Agabus? How many preachers have you heard say, God told me. It seems to be seems to have been going on here in Acts twenty one. We need to be very careful when we seek wisdom from the Word of God and not be distracted by feelings or assume too much that we might perceive as the Holy Spirit. Agabus wanted to make an impassioned plea to Paul to get him to stay. It's kind of amazing or interesting at least to see how many, so many seem to be in tune with the Holy Spirit, but who was right and who was wrong. The power of the Holy Spirit in the gospel is something that we all trust and all believe is there. There is evidence everywhere in every day of our lives if we just open our eyes and see it. And in Paul's day, particularly during these accounts in the book of Acts, we, there was healings, there was tongues, there was women prophesying. But was that supposed to continue? Was it really temporary? In 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul wrote, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will end. 
language, they will pass away, more specifically. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What has come to us that we consider perfect or complete? The written word of God. Why do we no longer believe that the special gifts are active? The miraculous gifts, the healings, the tongues, all those special abilities and skills. Because you know, as I know, that it is so easy to deceive people. You get an exciting speaker, an inspiring speaker a good-looking speaker. You hear him say, God told me, or I've even heard women preachers say, God told me, or I saw Jesus in a vision. I read an article this past week of one particular lady preacher who was part of the health, wealth, and prosperity clan said she got to visit heaven and she saw Jesus and someone asked her what did he do up there? He said he liked to drink, eat candy bars and ride his dirt bike all over heaven. I'm not joking. It is so easy to deceive people. You get an exciting speaker, someone who speaks well in front of a crowd, someone who has that confidence. And people can be led astray. That is why he put an end to the special gifts. When the word of God was complete, that is what we should rely upon. Galatians 1 beginning of verse 6, the Apostle Paul struggled with that church. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It happened in Paul's day. They were deceived. They got distracted. Not that there is another one, there is no other gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you the gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. We have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And that word anathema literally has a context with it that says, hand it over to God for damnation. The Apostle Paul was teaching in the church at Galatians as he teaches us, do not be deceived. If it is not in Scripture, if it is contrary to Scripture, if it is added to Scripture, if someone ever suggests that God changed his mind, don't believe them. Run the other way.
there is an emphasis on the Christian's ability to face spiritual danger because it's out there, folks. If you're going to take a risk for the glory of the Lord, would you prefer to trust man's word or the Bible? I'm going with the Bible. Who was facing spiritual danger? We know that Paul was. We need to ask ourselves who was fearful? Who was unwilling to face the spiritual danger? Paul was not, but Agabus was. So as we make application, we need to ask ourselves when we consider spiritual danger. And we've seen in the news things that have happened to other Christian believers, other churches around the world, some here in America. Are you able, are you ready, willing, and able to face the risk of spiritual danger for the glory of the Lord and for his word? Are you ready to trust his word fearlessly. That's what we are called to do. Some might say I have an excuse, offer an excuse. The Holy Spirit just hasn't led me into danger. I haven't been called to that. I haven't felt moved. I haven't felt burdened. Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You might wonder why, how in the world you can overcome some of the temptations you face every day. I know some of you struggle with some temptations. Things that still cling on. Things that won't leave you alone. And every now and then you give yourself an excuse to indulge. You're not walking by the Spirit. You've become afraid. You don't trust the Word. You're buying into the lie that Satan has given this world. And you should not. Perhaps you've wondered about the work of the Holy Spirit in your own life. It is mysterious. And we always have. We are assured of hope for eternity with our Lord. But we kind of accept that we will not see the miraculous power today like they had back then. We won't see the wonderful miracles that delivered so many people from so many things. So we ask, why can't I find victory over habitual sin? Miracle gifts have ceased. We have been given the word of God. And if we do not obey the word of God, the Holy Spirit's not going to bless our life with strength and faith and deliverance. We saw it last week. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is him who works in you to will, to will and to do for his good pleasure. There is part of salvation. Once we have this free gift, 
that we are supposed to develop and nurture and help and learn. For example, some of you have have experience in military service. Once you sign on, once you're in, inducted or drafted or volunteered, however you got in, it's almost like you place, you may not have been aware, of a fearless trust. All right, they're going to teach me some things, and I'm going to try and endure this and learn this. And through training and conditioning and instruction, they enhance your strength, your skills, and your knowledge. You gain proficiency in some areas. And you're able to advance, achieve rank, improve, develop skills. However, if you're in military service and you don't even try, you will not advance. In fact, they probably won't keep you longer than your first four-year term. Is that right, or is it six years? There is very little power in a Christian's life when he or she fails to trust his word. If you're not going to obey the word of the Lord, if you're not going to seek the power of the Holy Spirit through the truth that is therein. You're not going to find the courage to fearlessly trust him. Know his word. Study his word. But most keep compromising with the world. And that's not a good thing. There is a continued emphasis on shepherding the flock. We've seen that. There is a lesson on Christians' ability to face spiritual danger fearlessly. There is more I could say. I'm probably going to have a part two next week. Because I'm out of time. But let me suggest, if you have not yet, yet seen it, just a few little paragraphs about Francis McCamey. If you wonder about, boy, it must have been easy being a Christian in the good old days. Here was a man who was faithful to the Lord. This was before the American Revolution by almost a century. When Francis McCamey convened the first Presbyterian meeting held on this continent in 1706, he wrote, Our design is to meet yearly and oftener, if necessary, to consult the most proper measures for advancing religion and propagating Christianity in our various stations, and to maintain such a correspondence as may conduce to the improvement of our ministerial ability. That sounds so much like Presbyterian ease. But then that final 
paragraph soon after McCamey was arrested in New York for preaching the gospel. This man was not someone who was a stuffed shirt administrator in the Presbyterian Church. He would preach the gospel on the streets. The governor of New York declared McCamey to be a jack of all trades, a preacher, a doctor, a physic, a merchant, and attorney or counselor at law. And which is the worst of all, a disturber of governments. He preached against the darkness of his day. And they put him in jail for it. But he had a fearless trust in the word of God. And so should we. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and its truth. Thank you, Lord, for the power of the Holy Spirit as it comes to us in your wisdom and light. Help us to apply it to our lives as we seek to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.